I will keep fighting to bring peace to humans and robots. This is the Guileless Gamer Podcast. I'm Stefan, and this is part three of Mega Bluster, our very, very long interrogation of the Mega Man franchise. This time around, Mega Man 3, released in Japan as Rokuman 3, Dokutowari no Saiko, which translates as Rockman 3, the end of Dr. Wily, in September 1990 for the Nintendo Family Computer, and in the United States in November 1990 for the Nintendo Entertainment System. began this project, I did so with the goal of answering two questions. The first, what makes a Mega Man game a Mega Man game? The second, what actually caused the character's decline from a premier mascot at the cutting edge of gaming to a nostalgic curio wheeled out from time to time for brand maintenance purposes and nothing more? Actually answering those questions is going to take a long, long time. But I want to start the discussion of those topics in earnest here with Mega Man 3. Why now? Because often the seeds of an eventual failure are sown at the moment of greatest success. And there are many aspects of Mega Man 3's production, release, and impact on its creators that would influence the direction of the franchise for decades to follow. I contend that its repudiation by one of its makers almost two decades after its release served as a final surrender to entry and acceptance of decline. And yet, apart from its significance in the long-term arc of the franchise, Mega Man 3 also rises to the level of supremely interesting and replayable video game, one figuratively and literally bursting at the seams with new ideas that place it near the apex of robust 8-bit gaming experiences. Released in Japan only a couple of months before the Nintendo Super Famicom, Mega Man 3 represents the climax of a three-game narrative and mechanical arc that began when Capcom formed a team to build a console-exclusive adventure and continued when that team lived up to its promise with a refined second effort. Whereas the team behind the first two entries in the series remained largely consistent, Mega Man 3 saw substantial turnover in personnel, with key figures departing and others expanding their roles to fill the void. Most significantly, Mega Man 3 was the first game in the series not to be directed by Akira Kitamura, the character's creator. Kitamura had left Capcom following the production of Willow in 1989 to found independent developer Takeru, most famous today for having produced the exceptional but rare and expensive Little Samson for Taito in 1992. Our understanding of the aftermath of Kitamura's departure has been enhanced immeasurably by Salvatore Panay's book Mega Man 3, 
available through Boss Fight Books, link in the show notes. Kitamura has not spoken publicly about the cause of his departure, but there is some reason to believe that he felt disrespected by Capcom's handling of developer credits on their released titles. This practice has faded with time, but during the late 1980s, it was common for games to either ship without credits or for developers to hide their identities behind pseudonyms, such as Kitamura's AK and Inafune's Inaf King. Capcom and other development houses enforced this practice largely as an anti-poaching mechanism. It was harder to hire away a talented and successful developer when you didn't know who they were. But Kitamura believed that the practice was denying him both credit and opportunity. And when he decided to strike out on his own, it was with the expectation that he would stick it to Capcom and prove himself a superstar in his own right. We'll take a close look at Kitamura's next project, Kokoro, in our next episode. But to summarize it here, it bore some mechanical resemblance to Mega Man but was wrapped in an aesthetic much at odds with Mega Man's particular brand of cute cool. It maintained the basic mechanics of non-linear level selection and action platforming, but also layered in a heavy customization mechanic, allowing players to build their own robots rather than power up one. This had the effect of empowering the player, but it also drained some personality from the characters themselves. Whereas Kitamura had done a magnificent job breathing life into his cast at Capcom, he was unable to do so at Takeru despite having significantly greater control over the project. Kokoron came and went without making much of an impact in 1991. This would not be the last time a Mega Man franchise steward fled Capcom to make his own robot-themed platformer only to find that repeating past successes was difficult to achieve outside of the walls of the Osaka-based studio. Perhaps that's because the support structures in place at Capcom helped to hide the individual flaws of otherwise brilliant but organizationally overmatched creators. Or perhaps it's just because the team had struck gold with Mega Man, and without his unique charm, the games they aspired to make just weren't that interesting in much the same way that a star can transform a rote script into a compelling film by their presence alone. So too can a star character sometimes give its owners license to repeat themselves, at least for a little while, without anyone getting too bored. That same level of mechanical repetition without that star character loses something, and grows tiresome quickly. None of this was known at the time, of course. The only thing that management at Capcom knew was that the team lead of its star character had left and was looking to prove himself. And that meant only one thing. Mega Man 3 had to beat Kokoron to market. With Kitamura gone, Capcom turned control of the franchises over to Masahiko Kurakawa, who had led planning on the Japan-only hit Higamaru Makaijima, Nanatsu no Shima Daiboken, or Hell Island, Great Adventure of Seven Islands, a sequel to the 1984 game Pirate Ship Higemaru. On paper, Kurokawa seemed to fit for the franchise, especially after his successful stewardship of the NES port of Capcom's arcade hit Strider, which was also a side-scrolling action game. 
and he approached the material with respect, even going so far as to consult with Kitamura as the latter was on his way out the door. Kitamura advised Kurokawa to leave the core gameplay systems untouched, and to focus on improving the game's presentation, bringing Mega Man 3, the end of Dr. Wily, more in line with the popular television series Kitamura loved growing up. Kitamura also suggested the basic concepts of new characters Rush and Proto Man. The latter in particular echoed the popular rival-slash-secret-brother archetype most familiar to Westerners of the day in Speed Racer's Racer X, and established firmly the franchise's inclination towards anime-style melodrama, which would persist through many future entries and subseries. With solid gameplay foundations in place, a new story to tell, and an audience primed and ready for more Mega Man, the third installment in the series seemed off to a promising start, but development would prove difficult. Most of the team working on Mega Man 3 was new to the series, but there were two holdovers from the previous games. Artists Yasuaki Kishimoto and Keiji Inafune, two members of the original Rakuman team. It is important to stress we do not know what happened within Capcom's walls during development on this game, and we likely never will. What we do know comes mostly from interviews that Inafune gave many years later, where he alluded to a miserable process during which he clashed with Kurokawa, who he claimed didn't really understand Mega Man the way his predecessor did. It is easy to imagine a power struggle between Inafune the young artist who had as strong a claim to the character of Mega Man as anyone still at the company, and Kurokawa, the outsider who had been assigned to take over an established property after the departure of its team's beloved leader by the same corporate masters that the young artist blamed for his mentor's exodus. But with Kurokawa having passed away in 2008, and Inafune having shied from the spotlight, following his own failed attempt to carve out post-Capcom stardom, a topic to which we will return much, much later, all we are likely to ever know for sure is what we know now. That halfway through development, Kurokawa left or was removed from the team, and Inafune was left to finish development as the functional planner. Said Inafune, I knew that if we had more time to polish it, we could do a lot of things better. Make it a better game. But the company said that we needed to release it. For many years after, Inafune would refer to Mega Man 3 as one of his least favorite entries in the franchise. Developed in intense turmoil by a crumbling team under a tight schedule. Does Mega Man 3 reflect any of that? In places, yes. Presentationally, the game represents a bit of a scaled-back effort in some ways, and a franchise-forward rebranding in others. The precedent-setting opening cutscene from Mega Man 2 is gone, leaving behind only a Spartan title screen. 
The crisp blue of the stage select screen has been branded with the Mega Man 3 title. Note the Roman numeral 3 in the game, contrasting the Arabic numeral 3 branding on the box. The eight robot masters, Sparkman, Snakeman, Needleman, Hardman, <laughs> Topman, Gemini Man, Magnet Man, and Shadow Man are even more cartoonish and less thematically cohesive than the motley crew of Mega Man 2. And for all of his added personality, Rush, Mega Man's robot dog, is little more than a reskin of the items Dr. Light gifted the player in the previous game. However, Mega Man 3 is also more ambitious in its scope than Mega Man 2. The introduction of Proto Man creates greater opportunities for storytelling within the gameplay, and the mystery of who he is and what he wants is resolved only at the end of the credits. Robot Masters from previous games return for the first time in a sense, with the ghosts, yes ghosts, of four of them possessing Wily's dock bots and giving the sense of a world that actually spans multiple installments in meaningful ways. Gamma, the final boss, is yet another technically impressive feat for the NES, filling the screen and animating impressively. But the most significant change, the one that subtly expands the real possibilities of the series, is the introduction of the slide. It's easy to overlook the slide as a mechanic, but its impact on moment-to-moment -moment gameplay in Mega Man 3 is gargantuan. Suddenly, movement speed was no longer binary. It was now possible for a Mega Man already on the move to drop like Ricky Henderson and gain a quick boost of acceleration for a limited period. This technique not only resulted in temporarily increased movement speed, but also lowered Mega Man closer to the ground, allowing him to not only jump over attacks, but also pass under them. In this way, the slide became a critical tool in the player's tactical arsenal, and level design and enemy placement were adjusted to reflect the presence of that new tool. Crucially, the slide set a precedent. Over the next decade, games in the series would introduce new features or mechanics at a steady clip but most of them would have a negligible impact on moment-to-moment -moment gameplay and decision-making. The slide, however, affected player decisioning at all times, enabled new level design and new enemy designs, and established definitively that while shoot may be more immediate and flashy and impactful, move was where meaningful innovation in the series would happen. I will state it clearly, nearly all meaningful evolution in the Mega Man franchise is the result of changes in how the player moves, not how the player shoots. Mega Man 3 is a game worth revisiting, and one deserving of praise, but it also represents a definitive turning point in the evolution of the series. After the rough first draft that was Mega Man, and the home run that was Mega Man 2, it wasn't clear whether the franchise had what it took to persist as a reliable moneymaker. Given the circumstances of its development, it wouldn't have been shocking to see it crash and burn. Instead, it sold more than 1 million copies, becoming the 67th best-selling game on the NES, 
Again, significantly lower on that list than I would have expected. After its success, however, the template for the franchise was set. Bigger, louder, more dramatic, more robot masters, more move-and-shoot action, colorful characters, long-lost relatives, and more and more robot animals. There was money in machines, Capcom decided, and specifically money on the family computer. Let the Marios and the Final Fantasies and the Castlevanias march into the 16-bit future of the Super Famicom. It would be three more years before Mega Man followed in their footsteps. In the interim, Capcom was content to hang back and let the easy zennies roll in. Thanks for listening to part three of Mega Bluster, our very, very long interrogation of the Mega Man franchise. Music from this episode was sourced from ocremix.org in compliance with that site's content policy. You can find credits and links to the original compositions in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. If you did not enjoy this episode, I promise the next one will be better. If you have any feedback you'd like to provide or if I missed something, you can reach out to clay at guilelessgamer.com. This and other social links are also in the show notes. How long will I keep on fighting? How long will my pain last? Maybe only the X-Buster on my hand knows for sure. Sure.